Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists share the most recent work. This week, I had the distinct pleasure of chatting with John Freeman, Associate Professor of Psychology at Columbia University. John's lab studies how we perceive other people, such as how we categorize others into social groups and infer their emotion or personality via facial cues. In this chat, I asked John to talk about how we rapidly make up our mind about another's entire character in less than a second and how such first impressions can oftentimes be false and succumb to various biases. How do we perceive another's personality? And do people make the same inferences all around the world? Do attractive people seem more trustworthy? Finally, John talks about his recent efforts on behalf of the LGBTQ science community. Hope you enjoy our conversation. Today on the Stanford Psychology Podcast, I am very excited to be talking with John Freeman about social perception. Thank you so much for making the time. Happy to be here. Okay, social perception. What even is that? I can think about object perception. I can look at a table and pretty quickly decide that's a table. But looking at a person and deciding, can I trust them? Can I rely on them? Are they going to help me or harm me? That seems to be a much more complicated process where I would intuit people take forever to make up their mind if they can trust someone, if they can rely on someone. Is that right? The comparison that you make with a table is actually interesting because from our perspective, we think that a lot of domain general cognitive processes play a really important role in social perception. And from one perspective, it is a really unique things of perception more broadly But from another perspective, we're drawing on the same kinds of cognitive and computational principles as we use for categorizing tables, categorizing chairs, categorizing furniture, categorizing everything of the non-social world. And that, I think, has implications for how we think of intervening where we have what I think most of us would call maladaptive kinds of tendencies in social perception, meaning the use of or disproportionate use of social category information and stereotypes and prejudice. So if we're drawing on these broad cognitive mechanisms of categorization to improve the efficiency of the brain's ability to sort an impossibly complex world, it's it's one that has implications for how we target interventions, and B, it makes it particularly challenging, I think, because we don't want to turn off cognitive categorization in the brain. So I think it's the comparison you made, I think, is interesting. Social perception is a really broad term that includes But historically in social psychology, it included or still includes really elaborate, complex inferences as you're making, as you mentioned, in terms of who given a, a lot of detailed information, how do we arrive at some kind of complex evaluation that integrates all of that. But there's also, of course, and this is a focus of my lab's work on visually based or sensory based social perception, which of course is very immediate. And, and we arrive at elaborate inferences from just the, from the briefest of encounters. And all of this, both the kind of elaborate kind of inferences that we make when given a lot of information, or the very kind of split second ones, all of those can be quite consequential in terms of how we navigate our social world and make decisions about other people. So when you say split second social perception, 
you were saying that people make up their mind if they can trust someone, if someone is dominant or aggressive towards them in less than a second, and that predicts how they will interact with that person? Yeah. So a lot of research has shown that from, particularly from facial features, that trustworthiness is dominance, competence, intelligence, right? All sorts of inferences are made from from specific facial features. And research has shown that within 100 milliseconds of exposure to an individual's face, that predicts time unconstrained judgment. So the same kind of judgment is made about a face with given unlimited time as when given 100 milliseconds. Now that's just on the basis of facial features. And we usually assume that, okay, if these inferences can be gleaned from just facial features alone, that these are the sort of the instantaneous impressions that people are forming in initial encounters. And research has shown how that kind of sticks in later stages of personal perception, right? So if facial features, and there's a example I like to give that I think is intuitive for a lot of folks, which I'm not going to spell out what the acronym means, but RBF, uh, if anyone's familiar with RBF, resting something face, that's something Vice Magazine wrote up some of our findings one year with that title. But RBF is something where the chronically, right? It's even if we know a person and know that they are not their emotional states and dispositions are not consistent with that kind of inference, it's still really difficult to get away from those sorts of impressions because chronically the brain is activating certain inferences of related to that perception. And so there's these initial in impressions can certainly change, right, on the basis of behavioral information and dispositional information as we get to know someone better, but they stick though too. And so we, we do make up our minds quite quickly that doesn't mean that those are permanent by any means, but they're sticky and they can be difficult to change. What exactly are we looking at when we look at someone's face and judge them without knowing anything about them other than we're looking at their face? What are some facial cues that we rely on for better or worse? Yeah, there's a number of different cues that have been shown to be really important for social perception for the one Emotion cues are very well char characterized, right? In terms of this goes back to Charles Darwin. And then, of course, really further promoted with Paul Ekman in the 1970s and 80s. And then there's now an entire massive research program with many different perspectives. But the idea that there are very specific facial features that relate to specific emotional states, that's a clear thing that there's a number of emotions that could be conveyed by facial features. And increasingly, folks are finding that far more than just six basic emotions, but 28 different kinds of emotional states can be reliably discerned from facial features that are a lot more graded and complex. There's that. Now, in terms of personality inferences, like trustworthiness, dominance, et cetera, where you started, those, a lot of it, the research suggests that we, what's called overgeneralization, and we overgeneralize from emotion cues. So the idea is that we are extremely attuned to functionally adaptive cues like emotion. And so anger and joy expressions if you take angry and happy expressions and you mute them down to a, a really neutral level, so it's a face that ostensibly is displaying no overt emotion, there's structural resemblance. So furring of the brow a little bit versus more open brow, roundness of the face, these are things that relate to anger and happy expressions, but at a very neutral level, those are read as untrustworthy or trustworthy, respectively, because the idea is that we're overgeneralizing from these very functionally adaptive cues, and we run with that hypothesis a little bit too far. And so 
some research suggests that we're really overgeneralizing on the basis of those kinds of inferences. And that's why where these things are rarely predictive of someone's actual personality or actual behavioral tendencies, right? Usually these things do not take us very far. So a lot of these inferences are related to these kind of emotion cues, which right structurally our faces might resemble a baseline, but of course these are ephemeral and we can change them, right? So if you're posing a photo, posing for a photo, we know from right just taking selfies that of course you can take a hundred different photos and that are sensibly neutral, right? They're not displaying an overt emotion. And you can look all sorts of different, convey different kinds of personality traits, depending on that, right? The kind of photo you present on LinkedIn or Twitter, science Twitter versus Instagram, Facebook, or in, in your social world otherwise are vastly different because they're communicating different personality traits. So we are bound by our baseline structure, but that can change if we're playing with emotion cues, right? You can, of course, change the brow pretty easily, and that can have implications for how trustworthy or untrustworthy you're looking. That said, there are some perceptions that relate to things that are a lot more fixed. Uh, and one cue is the facial width to height ratio. So the bizygomatic width, so the width kind of right at the jaw relative to the, the height of the face in terms of the brow to the upper lip. And that is a cue that particularly in men relates to pubertal levels of testosterone. And because pubertal levels of testosterone, particularly in men, is after many years and in the aggregate, there's a very modest correlation with actual aggressive tendencies. There's a ton of heterogeneity, but there's this modest association with if you had more circulating levels of testosterone during puberty, on the average, you can see that men will tend to be a bit more aggressive, assessed in various different ways. And pubertal levels of testosterone promote the lateral growth of the face. And so there you get this kind of relatively honest signal, right? It's in the aggregate. Men that have wider faces tend to be more aggressive, but it's a very, very small modest association. So you can never use someone's facial width to height ratio as some kind of predictive cue that you could in, in any kind of way discern how it's going to be. But statistically, you can see those associations. So it's not to say that there's nothing accurate at all from a static photograph of someone's face. There are some cues that relate to those things. And of course, when we're talking about that's these are static facial features, when we're talking about dynamic nonverbal behavior, dynamic nonverbal behavior of the face, voice, and body can convey a lot of information that can be surprisingly accurate. But we're talking about the initial baseline kind of evaluation. Yeah, it seems that the more fundamental and dramatic our inference from someone's face is, the less likely we are to be true. So if I look at someone who's smiling at me, if I say, that person feels happy right now, seems that I might be more right than if I infer, well, that person is a trustworthy person and I can rely on them 10 years from now. That seems like a very dramatic judgment. And yet, as you find and as other people find, we make these judgments all the time. And there's a whole industry out there of people teaching others how to read in someone's face if they're lying and if they can be relied on. And it seems like there's a lot of bad information. But what is this need that we have to be able to read in someone's face if we can trust them or not? I think the idea of where the trustworthiness and dominance and that initial paper, which connected, connected it to the stereotype content model, which, which is drawing on these ideas of universal dimensions and social cognition, the stereotype content model referring to warmth and competence. And then the, this, these 
models in terms of face evaluation, sort of classical model here, trustworthiness and dominance, which really is not the same as work and competence, but it's highly similar, those dimensions. And you get this idea that it's adaptive to size up someone's intentions, good or bad, trustworthy or untrustworthy, and then separately the ability to enact those intentions, meaning dominant, submissive, powerful, not powerful, able, unable. And so evolutionarily, you can make that argument that it's certainly adaptive for us to sort and try to glean whatever we can about a con specific's ability or his intentions and to be good or bad, and then their actual ability to enact those good or bad intentions. So I, that that is plausible. I think also where what I keep coming back to is the the how critically important categorization is in the brain generally for cognitive for for anything right we have an impossibly complex world a ton of ambiguity and we want to simplify that as much as possible which is why we have categorization of the non-social world and I think as that gets ported over to the social world from one perspective, evolutionarily makes a lot of sense why we'd be, do that, be doing this. But I also think you know, social stimuli are some of the most critical stimuli for our for our lives, right? For our surroundings and how we're going to interact with others. And so we want to, even if there's not some sort of evolutionary reason, I think just simply that it is very helpful for us to try to glean whatever we can to know, to reduce the ambiguity that other people inherently are. And so it's not too surprising to me that we try to infer this information because other people, we want to guide our behavior to people that are inherently ambiguous before we get to know them. I guess somewhat provocatively, one could say what's interesting about this cognitive account of categorization is that it doesn't really matter if we are correct, right? We just want to feel like we understand other people, but then maybe we're wrong, but at least we feel like we can predict the world and we can predict other people. Is that too cynical of a take? I think you're getting at a question of the almost kind of post hoc, what, how do we feel about the inferences that we're arriving at, which increasingly, not exactly that, but there's increasingly, and we're using it in my lab, Bastian Yeager, who's a researcher in this space, has a physiognomic belief scale that's interesting in terms of the extent to which people feel like they can buy into this idea that you can read something from people's faces, which hasn't gotten to, actually in my lab, this is one of the directions we're starting to go in is this kind of implicit explicit divide where we're looking at people that might want to not necessarily override, but correct some of these kinds of inferences, or they really, they have different views about it, whereas other people fully subscribe and say, yeah, this is interesting to me. This is what I want to do. So I, some of your comments are getting to that question, which really has received very little, if any, attention empirically on what do people do and how do they feel about making these inferences and do they correct or do they sustain these kinds of inferences? But from my perspective, it's all of this is happening spontaneously. And I think just the same way that if you were to say, don't use, if you were to try to manipulate individuals into thinking that emotions uh, say the, the quote, basic emotions have no bearing on someone's actual emotional state. So don't use them. People are going to use it. If you think of the, right, the Stroop task or something as simple as that, you can't, can try to tell people all you want. Don't read the meaning of the word on the screen read. And you're never going to get them to stop automatically arriving and going beyond the letters to make that inference, right? And to categorize the stimulus. And so the kind of cognitive categorization account 
is not trying in any way to diminish the social complexity that's involved in these inferences, but it does, I think, the kind of obligatory nature of these highly automatized learned associations, I think it highlights that it's beyond our control to some extent of that initial activation of this these kind of inferences, right? We're only starting to look at what do people, do people subscribe to this? Do people feel okay with this? Do they try to correct it? But certainly the idea that you're going to automatically just use the perceptual information to start inferring all sorts of things that it's been associated with, that is not shocking to me at all from a purely cognitive standpoint. Okay, so I look at a stranger and I think they're selfish. They cannot be trusted. And then they act selfishly. And I might think I was right. And researchers might say there is some accuracy to this judgment. But correlation isn't causation. What about self-fulfilling prophecies here, where it turns out people might not appreciate being treated as untrustworthy and selfish, especially not by strangers who don't know anything about them, and might just react in self-fulfilling ways? Yeah, that's a great point. I think that's certainly plausible. And I think we really need more work. There have been a couple studies that look carefully at the initial inferences from facial features and then how did that relate to downstream behavior. As you can imagine, it's pretty challenging to try to demonstrate a self-fulfilling prophecy or this kind of going from the initial evaluation to these things in a more elaborate experiment. But I think that's certainly plausible for that to occur. The I think having confirmation biases as well as disconfirmation biases can exist. The correlations are actually not typically found in these kinds of studies, right? So when you look at, okay, people's trustworthiness evaluations from facial features and to what extent that predicts their actual behavior, that's th those correlations don't really exist, actually, right? So it's, I think you can get confirmation and disconfirmation processes that occur, but This is why I think it's really important the physiognomic belief as Bastian Yeager has been using in some of the studies we're doing, and I'm sure other research groups are starting to look at in terms of how do we integrate the information that we glean from a real encounter and how do we revise, if at all, those initial evaluations, a lot of the processes that you're talking about. So I think that's really important. And it's also happening at a time where research is debating What, which kind of inferences we're making, the trustworthiness and dominance, this sort of two-dimensional model has been has been quite popular since 2008 and drawing on this legacy of the stereotype content model. But there's increasingly a three-dimensional model, a four-dimensional model. We have specific perspectives on what exactly that reflects. But so it's, it's, it's still debated too in terms of what exactly we're inferring from this information. But I think it's so critical, the kinds of studies that you're talking about in terms of how do people accommodate What's often actually, you're going to find disconfirmation, right? You're going to find that this doesn't actually relate to people's actual inferences. But I think just the same way that I think what we can learn from and draw on is the a longstanding social psychological literature on confirmation, disconfirmation kinds of processes with stereotype congruent and incongruent information in terms of racial bias or gender bias, right? If people have these preconceived notions as they orient to the social world, and say white Americans in terms of their interactions with black Americans and have stereotypes that are often disconfirmed and maybe in some cases confirmed. And so how do they accommodate all that? And I think it's really important that we start to think about these inferences as facial stereotypes, right? Which has a similar kind of draws on a social psychology of stereotyping more generally. And I think then starts to enter into these more downstream processes of how do we reconcile or not these different kind of conflicting 
or consistent information. Yeah, this is how I understand a lot of the work coming out of your lab, right? You're saying they aren't just universal facial features that we tend to agree signal trustworthiness or dominance. It's also depending on the individual and what stereotypes they might have top down might influence how they actually perceive another person's face. Is that fair? Exactly right. Yeah. That we, and again, extending this sort of cognitive kind of categorization framework, just generally a role that conceptual knowledge and people's associations here. I, I usually always, I'm always personally skeptical of sort of universality arguments generally. And to think that even if there are things that can be largely consistent across large swaths of the population, that there's always going to be inter-individual cultural variability sitting on top of that. And I think it's really important that we study that. And I think what we're finding in our work is that there is a lot of consistency in terms of the mappings between facial features and particular traits, certainly. And But there's a lot of variability, too, that's gone unaddressed. And uh, we can see that variability for one, this literature has really almost exclusively historically focused on young white male faces and very precisely and very valuably characterized the specific mappings between facial features on young white male faces and specific traits. But when you start to include racial diversity, gender diversity, both of the targets of perception and of the perceivers making the judgments, that actually this changes fairly substantially. And what's changing there is there's, of course, some bottom-up featural differences without a question, but also people have to integrate, right? It's sort of have preconceived notions about gender and race, about age as well. And those are going to have to get integrated with your associations between specific features and traits. So say there is, as we were just talking about earlier, this overgeneralization phenomenon where you just have a mapping with furrowing of a brow being related to untrustworthy because evolution, you're so attuned to angry expressions. And so you run with that hypothesis. So we have that, but also there's all sorts of associations between different racial groups, different gender groups, different ages, right? And that has to get integrated. And we find that this exact kind of integration is what is happening when you start to broaden out and look at these inferences outside of the vacuum that they've often been studied in and looking at diversity and the targets of perception, as well as then we've also found that putting aside any kind of gender or racial diversity, but if you just look at sort of natural individual variability in uh, people's associations that they've learned over their lifetime, so associations between any of these different traits, right? It's sort of someone in the US or someone in different cultures might have the beliefs that warmth is really laid is really related to intelligence, right? That intelligent people tend to be really warm in the environments that they've encountered those people or in the media depictions, right? Cultural representations in that particular country, right? Or in their regional environment or what have you, or just social context they live in versus other people that think warm people are actually very unintelligent. And we find that these exact differences come out in the way that people make inferences from facial people, right? So it's also how you view the world and the social environment that you've observed, as well as that you've developed preconceived notions from different media depictions or cultural representations, all of that is coming out in people's inferences. So I think, as you said, I, I think, or from my perspective, I think thinking about these as facial stereotypes where social psychologists would never shy away from arguing that where do we get racial and gender stereotypes there? We definitely 
usually don't go to evolution, right? We usually go to, we've learned this and they're regionally, culturally, historically specific. I think while an evolution may have created this proclivity of humans to have group-based thinking, and I'm sure you've had other folks on your podcast that have talked all about this, right? So I think we might have that proclivity, but the content of those stereotypes, I think, are clearly learned from social context. And I think viewing these as, yes, evolution, functionally adaptive aspects may have lended ourselves to reading certain kinds of information from other people and really going beyond just superficial information and making these dispositional inferences. But besides that, the content of things I think are highly learned. And I think it's really valuable for psychologists to think about these inferences as facial stereotypes, right? That are subject to the same kinds of social cultural learning processes as any other stereotype, rather than just a backdrop of an evolutionary functional account that generally lends itself to these fixed universal sorts of arguments, right? So even the debates happening now of, okay, it's not just two dimensions of trustworthiness, dominance, there's this youthfulness, attractiveness dimension, or, oh no, there's this additional dimension of masculinity, femininity. I could talk about what I think that means. I think that's integrating group-based stereotypes, gender, race, age, with other kinds of spatial stereotypes. And I think that's really all it's coming down to. But I think as we debate these topics, I think it's important for us to recognize that while there might be some highly consistent structure and evolution might have set up the stage for certain things, that this is highly learned still and malleable. I have to follow up and ask about attractiveness. So I personally would never judge someone based on how attractive they are, of course. But I heard other people can succumb to what is called the halo effect, where if they have an attractive face, for example, maybe... They're inclined to think, oh, they're the most wonderful, warm, intelligent person. Everything must be great about them. Is there any evidence for that? If we read someone's face and see it as attractive, we treat them more favorably? Attractiveness halo effects have whopping effect sizes. And so attractiveness halo effects, I would believe any day, actually. <laughs> yeah, People that are judged to be more attractive generally have all sorts of boosts in so many domains of life. And I think, I think we'd all, as you said, we'd all love to think of ourselves as immune to these sorts of attractiveness halo effects or to other kinds of biases. And I think what we were talking about earlier, the idea that people might try to correct themselves or bias these inferences, and there's individual variability in how much people subscribe to these sorts of inferences, at least dispositional inferences, not necessarily attractiveness, but that I think is so important for some of the issues we're talking about now. But I, but. Yes, that, that certainly happens. People make automatically instances of attractiveness and it generally biases a lot of different kinds of behavior and attractiveness halo effects where there's this positive glow around all sorts of other instances. And why we often see that really valence traits like trustworthiness, likability are strongly correlated with perceived attractiveness. But I, I think where, you know, what increasingly the work that we were just talking about on social cultural learning, attractiveness, that literature is steeped, of course, as you can imagine, in a evolutionary functional backdrop of the common refrain is, okay, we have these three features of sexual dimorphism, facial averageness, and facial symmetry that all have evolutionary significance. And it's adaptive for heterosexual individuals to detect this in other, in members of the other gender for mating purposes and survival benefits, et cetera, sexual selection. So there's all of that, but there is certainly plenty of studies, plenty of studies finding that your own learning history, your own social cultural background shapes your attractiveness preferences. And we know intuitively that 
if you ask 100 different people, yes, you can see that faces that are more attractive on average will generally be sorted towards the top and those unattractive towards the bottom. But there's so much variability, right? And attractiveness really gets to aesthetics and there's other things. So what I really think that literature needs to be significantly expanded to and incorporating some of the social cultural learning that we're finding in a lot of these inferences. And I hope that as we find more social cultural learning and other research groups are also documenting this, but dispositional inferences that start to play a bigger role in the attractiveness research. Let's say some of our listeners are convinced, okay, I rely too much on first impressions. I want to give people more of a benefit of a doubt and just see how they behave and not judge them at first sight. What can they do? So I'm thinking of interviews, for example, where you interview someone without a picture of the applicant's face and interventions like this that exist. What are some common strategies that people could use to get themselves to be a little bit less reliant on first impressions if that's what they decide they want to do? It's such a understudied topic, right? And I think it's such an important question. Uh, and we, I think we and other research groups have just begun to look at this. And it's interesting because I think, again, drawing on this idea of facial stereotypes, I think we can certainly draw on a rich social psychological literature on bias interventions for racial bias and other things. And I think there's some similarities and differences. So we have try to see to what extent can we remap the actual associations to try to diminish their strength. So for example, this is like a counter stereotype intervention within the racial bias or gender bias intervention literature, where we present faces that are reliably perceived to be very untrustworthy and we pair it with trustworthy behaviors and vice versa in a kind of a probabilistic presentation of these things where 80% with their preconceived notion, 20% are consistent, make it a little bit realistic. And we do find that using explicit and implicit measures, trust behavior, and the implicit automatic activation of trustworthy and untrustworthy concepts or evaluative tendencies, that we do see actually pretty dramatic shifts that we were, I was surprised by at least, that we replicated a number of times. Now, I think as we know from Calvin Lai's work and other research groups that Yes, you can push around, say, an implicit association test, an anti-Black, pro-white implicit association test with a counter-stereotype intervention like presenting Oprah Winfrey and well-loved Black individuals in the U.S. repeatedly. You do something like that, you can 100%, not 100 you can very easily push around people's IIT scores, but then three to four days later, they go right back to baseline. So and I don't think that the kind of counter-stereotype shifts that we've shown in our studies I don't think that they would probably persist any longer than a couple of days at most, maybe even a couple of hours. I think we'd be lucky. And I think there's been a shift in the racial bias intervention literature to, to okay, let's, do we really want to try to change the underlying associations with counter stereotype interventions or any number of interventions? Let's try to do in this sort of bias habit breaking kind of framework. Let's just give people the tools. I think what you were alluding to. Let's give people the tools to override. Let's tell them as soon as this kind of happens where they have a negative evaluation, have them perspective take, right? Imagine what it's like to be in the life of a Black individual if we're talking about white participants in the US or have them, right, do a kind of counter-stereotype intervention or an if-then self-regulate themselves, et cetera. And I think that this is, it's too few studies right now in the literature we're talking about with face evaluations. But I think more, I'd like to think there's some hope to 
changing the underlying associations. I know that's lost a bit of favor in the racial bias intervention lit- literature. I We're starting to see where at least we're showing that there's malleability. And I think that's important for an inroad in. But I think it's going to come down to increasing studies that study exactly what's happening with bias habit breaking with racial bias intervention of trying to give people the tools to override that. If this evaluation comes to mind, here's how you regulate or here's how you reframe or here's how you prospective take. And I think as more studies are conducted, I think those are going to, what I would speculate is the same kinds of things that have been shown to be effective in these other kinds of interventions might also potentially be effective in uh, in these sorts of evaluations with the caveat that there's a major difference of with racial bias, there's in, intense social norms, of course, about not being racist or not displaying these biases. Whereas with face of the first impression as the physiognomic belief scale, Bastian Yeager's and our work is increasingly showing that there's a lot of variability where some people say, I 100% subscribe to this. I get a gist from someone's facial features and I believe that. Whereas other people are more like you, it sounds like, where they say, I don't want to be, I want to give people the benefit of the doubt. I don't think there's any meaning to this. And that that doesn't really occur with racial bias. I think everyone, any egalitarian, non-prejudicial, individual who's motivated to be non-prejudicial is, I don't want to be racist. I don't want to have this. And it's also socially unacceptable in almost every context in the US. Although unfortunately, with certain social political movements right now, that is changing. But I think here with face evaluations, it's quite different, right? There's not intense social norms about maybe you as a social scientist who doesn't want to, who doesn't want to be making these inferences. But I think a lot of people, a lot of people drawing on their extensive experience with inferring emotion and inferring things that have a lot of accuracy to them and making inferences about how intuitive, how intuitive they are about reading people's nonverbals and getting a, an accurate glean from an interaction, they port that over to these really dispositional inferences that actually have no bearing on some actual personality or behavior. So I think the challenges and there's some commonalities and clearly some major discrepancies between the racial bias intervention, gender bias intervention literature, and these kind of facial stereotype bias interventions. And it's so critical because as you say, we differ, and I can't wait to check out this work, that we differ in how much we take a step back and maybe give someone the benefit of a doubt. But that's what we say in a survey, right? I say that I just said this. You called me out for someone who at least pretends to give someone the benefit of a doubt. But even I, whenever there is a scandal, political figure turns out to be corrupt or new serial killer off the leash, the first thing I do is just this impulse to look up a picture of their face. Because I think some part of me is want to know what they look like so I can make sure not to trust the wrong people in the future. So I know what evil looks like. But there's no evil looking. It's just not how that works, but it's such a strong tendency. And it predicts, speaking of crimes, the length of sentence we give to people who have committed a crime, right? We They look selfish. They must be a horrible person. Let's lock them up for longer. It's, it's hard to overstate how dramatic these conclusions are. And so I want to ask, given that there's so many battles in this world that are also important alongside this important battle to fight, and the over-reliance on these oftentimes stereotyped and bigoted first impressions. Why did you choose to pick this battle? How did you first become interested in this topic? And yeah, just to, to reaffirm what you said, even, even if we're just talking about white male faces, so your whole gender and race constant, 
Studies have shown that it predicts criminal sentencing all the way to capital punishment, even when individuals are subsequently exonerated with DNA. So there's not the kind of the rival hypothesis might be your face is your fate. And the idea that there's something, maybe there's something quite criminal and evil that does manifest on the face. But the subsequent exoneration with DNA evidence really illustrates that it's more kind of a notion that people are arriving at in the courtroom or otherwise that is biasing behavior and obviously these extremely consequential ways. So I really do think, and I'm glad you feel the way that you just said about how important the battle is, because I felt that in social psychology, which is a purview of these sorts of biases, of course, right, in, in psychology, in terms of studying them, uh, it's been very, I think, because of the evolutionary functional backdrop, we're always going to read faces, and that's just the way humans are. We would never do that with racial or gender bias. And it's in no way to equate these different things, right? These are quite different, with different social historical backgrounds. But I do think there's an importance to drawing on that literature because these are biases that in theory are cutting across all members of society in different ways. We're showing intersex with race and gender, but every individual, right, is susceptible to these kinds of biases that can be biased in behavior in terms of career attainment, leadership criminal sentencing, hiring outcomes. And I think it's so important that we better understand what's going on as well as the kind of how do we reconcile them. In terms of how I, my honest answer is that I got into this not because of the, not because of the battle of the social issue at stake, but more, I think I was fascinated by how elaborate the kind of inferences we make, just the snap judgments that we arrive at about people so quickly and I found that really fascinating in terms of it's so essential to our social lives, right? It's it, other people make life so interesting and they're the most important stimuli in the environment. And we arrive at these really elaborate inferences. And I was really fascinated by that taken together with the general kind of cognitive principles we were talking about earlier. It's okay. You know, what I think learning about categories how categories get constructed. In undergrad, I studied psychology and neuroscience, but I also double majored in social cultural analysis, uh, gender sexuality studies, where there, they, there's okay, positivist science was even evil in the biomedical institution that has pathologized sexual and gender minorities and that. But one of the interesting things that I saw this kind of overlap was the role of how these categories get so right? And we all know these categories are socially constructed, but really thinking about the power that history and culture have in shaping gender categories, racial categories, or these different associations. And I think I got really fascinated about how all this kind of really top-down background structuring shapes these inferences that are so intimately a part of our social lives, right? And we subscribe so strongly to them and we feel so strongly about them as we navigate our social worlds. And there's something about how we make these highly automatized inferences that are clearly shaped from culture, history, how these things construct different categories and associations. That is just really fascinating to me and how the brain accomplishes that. And then, of course, how all that information scientifically could inform hopefully various battles, as you're saying, or social issues that are that we need to somehow develop solutions for. But what did inspire me to get into this area is uh, really trying to understand this process and understand not only, yes, maybe the evolutionary and functional back backdrop 
And yes, what's of course in the stimulus, which is a huge part of things, and what's in other people's faces and something that maybe is fixed there, but really more of all of this kind of complexity that's coming from culture and history that shapes these really automatized inferences. And so that that's really what I think got me interested in this work. One of the many stereotypes that we can have about different groups are, of course, about people identifying as LGBTQ+. And I want to call you out for all the efforts and the wonderful many things that you have done for this group of people in science specifically. So I want to give you a chance to talk about a recent effort of yours, a letter you have written to the National Science Foundation. If you could tell us about this project. Sure. I think as, a, as social psychologists, social neuroscientists, and for, for even an undergrad and then grad school, and then today I have many wonderful colleagues and friends who work in the STEM education space, right? This was not my research area by any means, but I'd at the Society for Personality and Social Psychology, I'd go to talks from friends on women in STEM or racial and ethnic minorities in STEM and very familiar with that literature. And I think my own personal experiences, when I got tenure hearing from trainees, from graduate students, from postdocs, from junior faculty about this, the disparities, the challenges that LGBTQ plus people are experiencing in STEM that resonates strongly with me, but without the sort of the, the whole research and policy landscape that is decades old and very valuably has existed to study women in STEM, racial and ethnic minorities in STEM, and these other marginalized individuals in STEM, where right, hundreds of millions of dollars are spent by the US government to understand these issues. And there's grants available, and there's a whole research ecosystem and conferences on this. And those researchers have very valuably charted out where in the STEM pathways do the issues occur and how can interventions reduce or eliminate these. And it's very well understood. And there's official data sets collected by the U.S. government since 57 to understand these issues. And the U.S. government cares about STEM disparities, not only for equity, but also because from a purely STEM talent perspective, right? As we, as the U.S. wants to compete on the global scientific landscape with right, what's very salient now with China, right? Or as we want to, idea being that we need to maximize the scientific and engineering talents of the US because if we think of, for example, the Nobel Prize winner in chemistry this year, you knows one of the first, usually regarded, I think, as the first openly LGBTQ plus to mm -hmm. receive the Nobel Prize, Carolyn Bertozzi. If 20 years ago, he were the PI was, I don't really feel comfortable with a lesbian in my lab. I don't really, we wouldn't have what are called bioorthogonal interactions discovered when they were, which has generated life-saving treatments, right? So it's an equity thing, but it's also a talent thing, right? We need everyone to be playing a role in STEM. And so I think for the US government cares a lot about this and bipartisanly, right? Because it's not just an equity thing, which usually is more appealing to Democrats. It's also a STEM talent thing and global competitiveness and right, increasing the ability of the U.S. to solve urgent and global scientific challenges. So I realized a couple of years ago, really five years ago, I started getting on top of this. And when I got tenure and I felt comfortable launching into this, that something needs to be done and we need to make this official, essentially. We need to get official data on the topic. We need to develop policies to prevent issues. And when I looked into this and I wrote a piece like an op-ed for Nature, I noticed that A, there are 
very few studies, right? There's hundreds and hundreds of studies with women and racial and ethnic minorities in STEM. Very can count on my fingers the studies that have been done, but they all show alarming issues that LGBTQ plus people are facing in terms of underrepresentation, retention failure, career barriers, workplace harassment, some of the highest levels of harassment in STEM. It's not shocking, I think, to the people that to LGBTQ plus people in STEM, but it's now being increasingly documented. But really, NSF, NIH, the White House, Congress are all pretty helpless to act without official data, including without official data actually tracking this, right? Because it's only with official data that the U.S. government collects can policies start to be developed or official inclusion and diversity initiatives like the NSF Graduate Research Fellowship Program, the NIH National Research Service Award, grant supplements, or to really have the kind of accurate, reliable data we need to inform national policy, university policies. And so what I've been focused on in the past five years is getting voluntary sexual orientation and gender identity questions added into the official data sets used by the U.S. government to inform these policies. And those just happen to be administered by the National Science Foundation. So a lot of people sometimes misunderstand what I'm doing because, very understandably, we all think of NSF as that's where I apply to get grants. So that's where I applied in grad school to get the GRFP. And that is 100% true. It also has a separate arm that's mandated by Congress to collect these official data sets. And so what everyone, what's most known is the survey of earned doctorates, which, you know, everyone across the country who gets their PhD as they're about to. So, you know, as you're a PhD student, correct? Or a postdoc, right? Yeah. So yes. you, when you will dissertate, Stanford will say, you need to take the survey of earned doctorates to graduate. And then NSF will ping you with the survey of earned doctorates and Stanford mandates that you take it. And in that survey of earned doctorates, it's conducted annually on every PhD student STEM, non-STEM in the country since 1957. And for the first time, due to our efforts, which unfortunately I've had to focus on what it would, what is wrong, but I do feel proud to say that, you know, due to the efforts of my colleagues, and we have been able to get for the first time since 1957, NSF to expand its gender question to include male, female, and transgender, check all that apply and write in alternatives, which will is just beginning to be implemented this year on one of the first surveys, not the survey of earned doctorates yet, but that will turn into that soon enough. The But sector orientation, not just yet. And I think, unfortunately, it's been a very long and complex process that has involved scientific issues, that has involved political issues, that has involved a lot of different things. But I do feel it's far slower and more challenging than we ever imagined. I do feel confident, especially after this latest engagement, that it's only, it's inevitable. It's only a matter of time. It's just, is it two years away or six years away? I think it's going to be more like two years, my hope, that sector rotation will also be added so that we can actually track in a guaranteeing privacy and confidentiality, absolutely, but track in a nationally representative way what's happening with the STEM education workforce experiences in the U.S. in terms of what happens not only during the PhD, but then after in terms of what happens to our PhD students in the country. Do they stay in STEM? Do they leave STEM? STEM industry? There's a lot of different official data sets. And at the same time, I'm also working on U.S. universities to also collect sexuality and gender identity data in a legal and ethical way that guarantees privacy and confidentiality protections. Because all of this, right, universities are eager to figure out where are the issues, right? So I think 
And what I think is going on is I think now we are experiencing that institutions, STEM institutions like U.S. universities do want to do better, right? They want to do this, but there's this knee-jerk reaction of, good God, I could never ask people about their sexual orientation or gender identity. That's way too invasive. That's way too sensitive. And these kinds of perceptions about the sensitivity of this, I think, and research has shown, actually prevents institutions from moving forward with this, even though we ask people on disability or on other similarly sensitive questions, right? Income, disability, salary. These questions actually quantitatively elicit far more sensitivity reactions, meaning people in these sorts of surveys will exit the survey or skip the question when you ask about income and salary and disability. In many cases, far with far greater likelihood than sexuation or an expanded gender question. But I think because of the perceived sensitivity of this or the perceived kind of politicization of these issues that people administering these surveys, the administration of U.S. universities feel like they can't do this. And as long as when we're talking about U.S. universities, as long as there's I could go into the kind of legal and ethical ways that this works, but there is federal law in terms of NSF surveys of the U.S. STEM workforce. And then there's a variety of laws and guidelines for U.S. universities that would keep this information private and confidential and legal and ethical while still being incredibly effective to to try to promote, resolve the alarming disparities that LGBTQ plus people are facing. In short, I'm trying to, there's no question that the LGBTQ plus community in STEM is facing significant disparities that have been, I think, overlooked in the blind spot right now because we don't have effective official data sets to practice and for policymakers and researchers to develop strategies and interventions to reduce, if not eliminate these disparities or inclusion and diversity initiatives or networking programs or what have you. And I think there's a lot of similarities to other underrepresented groups, right? I think there's a lot of dissimilarities too that we need to understand. One of the most important ones I think is that we're talking about a relatively, not always, but a relatively invisible identity, right? So we know how crucially important same gender and same race peers and role models are to the retention and advancement of women and racial and ethnic minorities in STEM, right? Seeing you're an undergrad, seeing your professor as having the same gender, the same race, ethnicity as you can be really powerful. It increases your sense of belonging. You're more likely to stay in STEM. What happens with LGBTQ plus people, right? There's these norms, these professional norms of, I don't, I don't want my professor to reveal their sex orientation. That's really weird, right? Or that's really invasive. And there's, there's this kind of irony of viewing some of these issues as too much tied to invasiveness or sex or sexual behavior rather than a demographic, a social identity that's subject to the same motivational processes as any other social identity. And I think it's really important that that makes visibility especially important. So one of the big dissimilarities, which I think is why we need the official data to be collected and why we need to study what interventions would be valuable because identity disclosures, meaning, right, revealing, whether it's a professor revealing to students or peers revealing to others that it needs to be okay to reveal while being perfectly professional, but revealing presentation to others or making people feel like there's a community and they can belong. And so these are issues that I'm certainly not professing to say I have any answers to these, but the 
That's not my job. It's STEM education researchers' job to get to the bottom of what could be effective interventions to make people feel engaged and a part of the STEM community who are marginalized and drawing on a vast literature on STEM education interventions at every career stage, because there's going to be unique differences and similarities. And another example that's coming to mind is just that the K through 12, where there's I don't know of any study that's been done on LGBTQ plus experiences in K through 12, but there's a ton, of course, on women and racial and ethnic minorities and how to engage underrepresented groups really early on. Well, those groups don't change their identities so vastly, of course, as they're growing up, their identities are informed by the social context, but it's not changing drastically. We know the role that coming out process can do K through 12, right? High school and bullying that can happen. And all of those are going to interact with the STEM education sort of process and cultivating that. So there's so many differences and similarities that I think we really need strong literature on. And I'll just end with this kind of section, I guess, on we're talking about what we were just talking about on the, when I got started with this five years ago, the federal government was often saying that these are, this is a hard to reach population. This is a small minority. But when you look at the latest data, it's actually a whopping sign. When you look at the Gallup's latest survey, we're talking about a 7.1% of U.S. population identifying as LGBTQ plus at just across ages across, right? If you look at millennials, it's 10 point something percent. And if you look at Gen Z individuals, it's 20, I want to say 22.8%, I believe if I'm correct, it's the Gallup's latest data. That's a massive and a lot of that's coming from people identifying as as non-binary or as fluid or as different kinds of identities. But the only point is that, and when you look at NSF's own pilot data, it found that sexual minorities alone, meaning we're talking about people identifying as gay, lesbian, bisexual, or some other orientation besides straight, is 12 to 13 to four, 12 to 14 percent. That's just sexual minorities putting aside trans and other gender minority individuals. That is compared to other racial and ethnic groups that NSF studies is very large. And if these people are leaking out of STEM pathways uh, from a purely STEM talent perspective, from a purely other Nobel Prize winners like Carolyn Bertozzi, who could have been lost and we would never have these life-saving treatments we have now, that is unacceptable, right? From that, from a 12 to 14% of the U.S. population. And that's just, again, sexual minorities alone. So I really think it's such a crucially important issue and also, I think having, I think it's also going to change with the official data. Why I've been so fixated on the official data, because I think having sex orientation and gender identity included in these surveys that every PhD student in STEM and non-STEM gets across the country every year, having it in the biennial reports that Congress gets from NSF, just having those terms and those things charted out, I think also sends a signal symbolically that will change the conversation in STEM, that sex orientation, gender identity, that the LGBTQ plus community and identities are a recognized form of scientific workforce diversity that needs to be valued. It needs to be understood. And I think that I just, again, even if the data, the worst case scenario, not the worst case, say NSF includes sex orientation and gender identity in all its surveys in two years from now, and nothing happens except the data sit in a corner that researchers and policymakers can use, and they don't even do anything with it. I think there's going to be a tremendous impact of just symbolically what that does in galvanizing 
research and policymakers, just almost like same-sex marriage. My former postdoc, Eric Heyman, who's a, who's a professor at McGill now and does amazing work, he had a paper in PNAS a couple of years ago on how statewide, statewide, as every before federal recognition of same-sex marriage, as every state got same-sex marriage, you could see a reduction in anti-gay and lesbian bias, according to the IAT, and also explicit measures that he could do some analyses that linked it up to a kind of causal argument where basically the same-sex marriage happens in a given state, and you see this sharp reduction in the negative anti-gay and lesbian attitudes, right, in that specific state. Wow. And I think that, you know, what I see there is it wasn't, that's not enough time for people in that state to see gay and lesbian couples married and it being this sort of, in my mind, this sort of inner group contact kind of thing. In my mind, it's just the kind of symbolic recognition that can really do a lot yeah. to change things. And I think that is, is why I've been so fixated on the data, because I think with the data come a lot of other things. And again, even if the data don't do anything, but I think they'll do a ton, even if it doesn't do any, even if they don't do anything, I think it will be very powerful. That that's my spiel on what I've been doing with LGBTQ plus STEM issues. Wow. Yeah. I, as someone who grew up gay in a very conservative community, I, to this day, barely know a single person who is anywhere on the LGBTQ plus spectrum. It's hard to overstate how isolating that is and can be. In academia, it sometimes just feels like more of the same thing, where I have peers who identify that way, but barely any professors that I know from social media, and that's great to see the flag in their Twitter bio or something. That already means mm -hmm. a lot. And so to see the data, and I also saw that you were invited to the freaking White House at some point, somewhere mm -hmm. alongside those efforts. Uh, so that's Thank very you. encouraging. And congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah. And the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy and the Biden-Harris administration are really interested and motivated to get these things moving, right? I think so. It's actually, they are now working or collaborating with these policymakers or government officials on moving forward with this. But and I completely agree on the kind of isolation. I think what's happening is that academia as it is structured in a way that we're supposed to move to all sorts, to any part of the country or any or anywhere in the globe for science, right? We're supposed to relinquish our personal objectives a little bit for you go for this higher order scientific ideal, right? The scientists, that's what they do. Mm -hmm. And I think that requires this compartmentalization of your personal and professional life that's a little bit disproportionate or a lot disproportionate compared to I'm going to get an MD and I'm going to move to San Francisco and become a medical practitioner. Academia doesn't work like that at all. You, you need to be, you're signing up for this sort of higher order purpose. And I think science, these kind of ideals about being objective and data-driven and emotionless and exacerbates this compartmentalization of personal and professional life. It's okay. I don't want to hear about I don't want to hear anything potentially politicized or your, I don't want to hear about your social identities. I want to, I, you need to be objective. And so there's not a lot of room for identity disclosures in terms of, I've heard from so, so many people since the nature commentary in 2018 and getting involved in this of exactly the sentiments that you just described at all different career stages, including people just starting their graduate careers of this isolation. And I think psychology is honestly doing Pretty amazing relative to other STEM fields like physics or harder sciences where you see a lot more kind of isolation and issues. I think in psychology, especially social psychology, we have a lot of openness to these things more so than other STEM fields. And I think, I think this is why 
there are these, I think these kinds of norms, the professional norms in science are very, pretty unique. I think professional norms exist in all different industries, right? You have to be professional in basically every industry, but there's something that goes beyond professionalism in STEM industry that I think the scientific ideals, the higher order purpose and this objectivism that I think frustrates and just exacerbates on the isolation yep. that, that LGBTQ plus people are feeling. And I think this is why it's so key that we really understand what's going on with research and then develop strategies and interventions and solutions to try to fix these issues. Yeah. And another academic ideal is to say you should just move anywhere, wherever you get a job and just go there, which not ideal for anyone. But as LGBTQ plus people, you have the added limitation that you are only comfortable in your skin in so many places. Exactly. We are sadly is... running up. Oh, yeah. It's time. But please make a final comment. I wanted to give you a chance and to thank you for just making the time. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's great conversation. And uh, yeah, I'm glad you're, uh, you're doing this podcast. I think it's so important that we communicate all aspects of different scientists to, to the broader community. So thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Following Robert Cialdini's advice here on this podcast, let's see if I can convince you to take about five seconds of your valuable time and leave us a quick review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or elsewhere. <laughs> this podcast has been a labor of love by several wonderful young folks here in the department, and we have been surprised by the ever-increasing reach the podcast has had. We are near half a million downloads a year and a half since we started, with tens of thousands of new downloads and thousands of new followers every single month in nearly every country around the world. Help us make even more people excited about psychology by leaving us a review or subscribing to our no spam, all fun substack at Stanford PsyPod to connect with other listeners or shoot us an email with your thoughts or suggestions at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and have a wonderful psyched